Welcome to the Small Business Matters Podcast, the only podcast that truly matters to small business. My name is Tim Fulton, and I am joined by the Director of Marketing for Small Business Matters, Taylor Fulton. Taylor, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, Taylor, I am very excited about our, our guest today. You know, you and I have both played on athletic teams, whether it was basketball or football or tennis, and we're both uh, sports fans, right? Following whether mm-hmm. it's it's University of Kansas or it's Tulane or it's the Miami Dolphins, and you know, it, it's always been puzzling to me why it is that some teams seem to perform so much better than others. And, and sometimes it's not even the most talented teams that seem to, to win all the games. And so we've got just the person with us on today's podcast that will help us under better understand why it is that some teams outperform others. And our, our guest today is Eric Coriel. Very pleased to have Eric with us. Eric is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin in Madison. That makes him a, a badger. He lives today in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Eric has a lot of experience early on in his career, corporate experience. He was a buyer, a purchasing manager, a vice president, COO, CFO. He was a president and then served as the, as the owner of several businesses. He currently has his own consulting practice where he helps companies build accountable teams. For our Vistage members who are listening, Eric has been a Vistage member He's, he's currently a, a very popular Vistage speaker, and that's how I met Eric. He spoke to several of my Vistage groups. So, Eric, warm welcome to Small Business Matters Podcast. Glad to have you with us. I'm glad to be here. So, Eric, let's start with you. The same question we ask of each of our guests. What is it that you do that truly matters to small business? Oh, well, I think for any small business or any business, actually, I think one of the great challenges is getting people to say what they really feel and to put the real issues on the table. And I, I found in my working career that one of my biggest struggles was getting people to to really work on the real issues and, and as opposed to avoid them, which I think most teams do. So the core of what I do is really getting creating the, the t- uh, team structure so that there's motivation and teaching people how to say what they really feel and deal with the issues that most teams, most organizations actually work hard to avoid. Very good. Taylor, take the next one. I was reading your LinkedIn profile prior to this interview, and one of the things that stuck out to me is helping leaders understand how to lead accountable teams. What does that mean? Well, for, for me, my... I believe that people either are accountable or they're not accountable, right? So if we get, we say we're going to get done, we're accountable, but all people at some point in time will fall short of getting things done. And in a traditional structure, it's usually the leader then that has to step in and take the accountability. We, we always talk about the notion of holding people accountable, but I think that's a myth. Uh, really what it means is the leader is going to step in and they're going to start doing something different uh, until the desired results are achieved. And that's what is typical in most organizations, but what I end up spending a lot of time with is, is helping organizations and businesses, whatever it is, getting the, the teams to become accountable such that if someone's not meeting the desired expectations, the team starts addressing those issues, at which point you now have an accountable team. And as you guys talked about, like good sports teams, on really good sports teams, the players are accountable to each other and, and they will deal with the things that, you know, in some teams, the coach has to deal with, right? So the more the players take on the issues, the more they become accountable. It's no different in business. And in business, the, the best teams I watch are the ones where everyone's accountable to each other and not just the boss whenever that person's looking. And so as a follow-up to that, talk a little bit about 
the hiring process and maybe the best way or, or some tactics for looking for accountable new hires or traits mm. that potentially could lead to a, an accountable team member? Sure. Um, well, there's a few things. So one is in terms of how you do the hiring and the other is kind of the questions you ask. And and that's a great question, Taylor, because it is very different. If you're trying to create an, an accountable team, first thing I'll talk about is, is who actually makes the decision. In, in typical teams, at the end of the day, it's the leader that decides you know, who the new person on the team is going to be. And, and so if, if I've got a team of four and one of my members leaves, you know, I may involve my other, my, my employees in the interviewing process, but at the end of the day, I, the leader, will decide. Well, when I'm on accountable teams, you know, what I will encourage them to do is, you know, since hiring is such an important thing, I'll suggest to the leader, hey, look, you know, you need to be in on the interviewing process. In fact, I would encourage you to pre-screen the employees. And you pass through the ones that you think would be good fits in terms of cultural. And But then at the end of the day, let the team make the decision. So I may pass through two or three candidates. I, I may have a favorite, you know, say A over B and C, but I'm okay with B and C. I wouldn't pass them through unless I was. And then let the team actually do the interviewing and they make the final decision. And what I find works about that is that when the team picks the person, even if they pick person C, and I may be kind of hopeful it's A, they now own C. They chose C. You know, they are invested in C being successful. If if I hire A and I give them A, they have no ownership around that person. And quite frankly, if A doesn't work out, they just blame the leader. So part of it is is kind of the process of hiring and who ultimately makes the decision. But then as you go to hire and you want people that are accountable, I mean, that, those are, you know, obviously those questions you're going to say, hey, are you accountable? But what I look for or what I'll encourage people to look for is, is have they been on an accountable team before? And, and again, sports is a, is a good example, but you want to find people that have lived, lived in that environment where they've had to have the difficult conversations with each other. And a lot of times you run into people and it's not their fault, but they've just never been on a good team. So well, actually one of the most important questions I ask is, talk to me about your best team. And a lot of times you find that people's best team, they never really was a good team. Um, and they never really did what good teams do. They never had the difficult conversations with each other. They never had the conflict. So one of the things that, that I will encourage people to look for in the interview is, hey, talk to me about your best team. And then talk about those situations where you may have disagreed with a teammate or, or felt another teammate was not upholding their end of the deal. What did you do? And and get very specific and, and find out if if they've lived in that environment and they're comfortable in that environment. Because a big part of this is is having the difficult conversations. And so I'm looking for people that have that have proven that they can and have done that. That's really interesting, Eric, that the, the hiring process plays such a critical role in, in building accountable teams. So imagine I'm I'm the leader of a team. To what degree will my team just over time evolve? into an accountable team and versus are there just certain moves that I have to make if I'm going to build an accountable team of all versus versus proactive? What, what sure. can I expect? Well, I, I think if you let it evolve, you, the likelihood of it getting there is, is pretty low. And it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things I do, you know, when I, either when I speak or work with teams, I'll have everybody think about their best team. And sometimes it's their family, sometimes it's a sports team, whatever it is. And and a lot of times the team did evolve. But I will tell you, it, it's, it's almost luck. I mean, there's a combination of things that took place. I think as a leader, your best bet is, is to put the things in place that will allow that team to happen. And just kind of through hook and crook and through years of, of failure, 
Uh, I've kind of pieced together the things that are really required to, to get a team to become accountable. And some of it's structural and some of it's behavioral. From a structural perspective, there's kind of five things that have to be in play. And while they sound obvious, they're not always there. The first is you need a really clear purpose. And as all, especially in the business environment, I'll go and work with a team and ask everybody, hey, you know, write down on a blank sheet of paper, what do you think the purpose of this team is? And very rarely do the answers ever match. So kind of the starting point is, is having clear agreement around, hey, what is this team going to be accountable for? In other words, what's its purpose? Secondly, it needs measurements. It needs to know, you know, exactly. People need to know, hey, are we on track towards achieving that purpose or not? Uh, in sports, it's easy, right? We have a scoreboard. We look up, hey, we're winning or we're losing. You know, we're going to halftime. We're down by 20. We got to do something different. We're up by 20. Maybe not. Yet in, in the business environment, a lot of times, you know, you ask everybody in the team, how's the team doing? I'll get like five, six different answers. So you need the measurements that tell the team whether or not they're on track. Third, you need competent people. I, I've yet to experience mm -hmm. a functional team that tolerated incompetence. But very rarely do I run across the best teams being a bunch of superstars. Usually they're very good at what, you know, the diversity of skill sets. And we we're all good at what we did, but it wasn't that we had to have superstars. Fourth thing you need is you need capable process, right? We need to have clearly defined roles and responsibilities. We need good communication. We need to know what decisions we can and cannot make. Basically, and that's to a great degree, is the leader's responsibility to put in the processes that will enable the team to be successful. But the most important structural thing in order for a team ultimately to become accountable is what I'll call a shared fate. And by that, it means what happens to one happens to all. And that really is the essence of what a team is. A team is a group of people that have a strong and meaningful shared fate. And if you want a group of people to function like a team, especially under pressure, there has to be a real and meaningful shared fate. So I think to a great degree, it's the leader's responsibility to, to build the shared fate on the team. So often as a leader, you know, I had a team and I would say, okay, you're in charge of sales and you're in charge of operations and you're in charge of finance and you got HR. I have an HR issue, I talked to the HR manager, right? I had a sales issue, I talked to the sales manager. And then I wondered why they weren't functioning like a team. Uh, if you want a group of people to function like a team, you got to create a shared fate such that what happens to one happens to all. And in sports, we do that because we either win together, or we lose together. In the military, they do that through basic training, right? They break you down or reconnect you. But in business, that's often overlooked and misunderstood. So the question then becomes, you know, how do I dial up that shared fate and get the team, you know, in that position where, hey, what happens to one happens to all? And that's that's probably the most important piece. And, and so if I leave it to chance, very often that shared fate's not there, especially in the business environment. So from a structural perspective, I'll tell you those, that's kind of the five foundational steps. From the behavioral perspective, you know, it's, it's really a matter of building trust. Once I have this shared fate, the ultimate goal is to get us to the point where we can deal with our real issues together. Well, the one other missing piece is trust, right? And so what I've discovered is, is that you got to kind of get to a base level of trust so that the teams will have these conversations. And there, the most important thing I've learned is, is actually getting people to speak for themselves. If you pay attention in meetings, very often people really don't speak on their own behalf. They'll speak on behalf of other people. They'll disguise the real issue in a pronoun like we or they or our. They'll say things like, well, we don't follow a process. And we don't, we're not dealing with the real issue because it's disguised behind a pronoun. Or they'll ask a question as opposed to making a statement. Hey, guys, don't you think we should do this? As, you know, do you think this would be a good idea? 
which is really not speaking for myself. And so one of the behavioral things that's critical in making this happen is to get everyone to, to speak for themselves, which means no more questions, no more group pronouns. And again, I'm, I'm going to speak on my own behalf. And so that's what I've come to believe is required to get teams to become accountable. You got to get those things in place. And, and so, sure, can you get lucky and you got a group of people that do that or you have those things in place? Yes. But I think you're much better off to, to consciously kind of work the steps and, and get them in place. Eric, what are some of the major or, or most consistent challenges or mistakes you see business owners make with regard to building these types of teams? Well, I think one of the, the biggest struggles business owners have, especially in small business environments, is letting go of control. I spent years trying to get my team to become accountable, but at the end of the day, I wanted all the control. And so if you say, hey, I really want people to become accountable to each other, I want these teams to take on more accountability, the first thing is, is coming to grips with the fact that it means you're going to have to let go of control. And that's not easy, especially when you're a small business owner and your mortgage is on the line. I mean, it's I liken it often to coaching, right? You know, when you go coach, you can't play the game. You got to put the you know, the kids in a position to be successful. But then you got to get out of the way. And that's one thing when it's a little league. It's it's another thing when it's you know it's my livelihood. So, I think one of the biggest mistakes is 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 expecting people to be accountable, but then at the end of the day, not giving up the control to allow that to happen. Um, so that's I would tell you one of the biggest ones. The second thing then becomes on the flip side of that is if if I'm going to create the accountable team. You know, I have to raise what I'll call the level of adulthood in my organization because other people are going to have to start up and step up and take it. And very often you'll have Harvey, and, and Harvey's really good at what Harvey does, but Harvey at the end of the day doesn't really want the accountability. And, and especially as a small business owner, I, I feel so beholden to Harvey and I can't let Harvey go. But if you want to create this environment, you just can't tolerate Harvey not being accountable. So. If you decide, hey, this is the kind of culture I want, you just got to be quicker to deal with the Harvey issue. And sometimes that means Harvey can't stay and, and I'll hold on to him for the wrong reasons. Um, so at a high level, I think those are probably two of the biggest challenges business owners, I think, face in doing this. Well, Eric, I've certainly had my share of, of Harvey's that I've worked with sure. and worked for. But I want to switch gears here for a moment. I shared with our listeners earlier your your biography and I'm, I'm i'm curious as you took on different roles and responsibilities was there a point that because such a powerful message that you've got for teams about accountability was there a point in your career where this all began to crystallize where all of a sudden you thought man this is this is powerful stuff this this accountability was there a point in your career this came yeah out? And it happened pretty early on. My first job out of college was a medical device manufacturer, and we were a smaller company, about $20 million, but we dealt with large companies, the Baxters and the Abbots, and, and they were so large, they were somewhat dysfunctional. So we, the only way we could survive really and, and, and be successful with these companies was to be functional ourselves. So this goes back more years than I care to admit, but most of us call it the mid-80s. And, and it was in those days, you know, teams were just kind of becoming vogue, but really didn't know what to do with them. And so we went to the whole notion of this cross-functional team idea where we, we put salespeople together with engineers together purchasing. And and quite honestly, the teams were a disaster. And, and the breakthrough for me was another Vistage speaker, actually. His name was Pat Murray, sure. was a longtime Vistage speaker. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad, who was a Vistage chair, gave me his tape and said, you know, you should listen to this. And I listened to it and I was just blown away. He had such different concepts and so I actually reached out to him, and, and he's been a mentor throughout my life. And and he was the one who really got me thinking about teams differently and, and realizing that 
you know, the kind of the road to an accountable team is a road less traveled. And, and that was really the, the turning point for me. And, and a lot of, as I said, a lot of failure along the way of what worked and didn't work. But he, he was the kind of the guiding. He was the one who kind of gave me the, the vision of, hey, this is ultimately what it's going to have to look like. Um, and that was the turning point for me. Thinking a little bit about organizational charts and how you formulate your team, is there a, a wrong way and a, a right way to, to put together an organizational chart? That's a great question. So I, I, 10 years ago, you asked me that question, I would have told you definitely. Um, as I get older and wiser, uh, no, there is no right or wrong. But I will tell you, each structure has its advantages and disadvantages. And the default organizational structure in most businesses is really the military model. You know, it was, And we didn't apply this to business until the early 1900s. But it's, it's the typical model you know, where you have the, the CEO or the owner on top, right? And then as we get bigger, we create departments. And as we get bigger, we add layers. And eventually, kind of we departmentalize all our different activities. And much like in the military, then you have the thinking done at the top and the doing done at the bottom. And in the middle, we're really just kind of managing accountability. Management's job is to tell the frontline employees what to do and then hold them accountable to make sure they do it. There's advantages to that, right? As a leader, it gives me a semblance of control. I can see see where things may be breaking down. If sales are dropping, I know where to turn my attention. Um, It's kind of easier to manage the accountability process. It's efficient in some ways. So I think there are definite pros to that, but there's also cons. It, it, it creates usually very upward-looking organizations because it's it's my boss now that's going to take my accountability away. It's the boss that sets the expectations. So that structure tends to be slower, and it, people are looking up into the organization as opposed to to the customer, and it doesn't always promote teamwork across the departments because every department's doing the best they can, right, to fulfill what they think they need to be done, but that often runs in conflict with the other departments. And so now we're competing for resources and all that kind of stuff. So I think with that structure comes pros and cons. More and more companies now are saying, hey, it's a, it's a faster moving world. We need to be more customer responsive. I want to move the decision-making closer to the customers. It kind of fits the millennial generation better because the, the, the traditional hierarchical structure is just doesn't fit them. So, hey, we, we have to kind of rethink the organizational structure. So you'll see, you know, the holacracy thing kind of gained uh, a lot of momentum for a while. But this whole idea of kind of flattening out the organization and moving the accountability down and other organizations will do it as I kind of, kind of we did with EWC. We, we went to more cross-functional teams. And that has a lot of advantages, but it, along with it comes disadvantages, right? So the advantages are, hey, we, you know, as an employee, I get a chance to take on a greater level of accountability and responsibility. Um, I, I make more decisions. We tend to move quicker. We'll function better across each other. But now it require, it puts a different onus on leadership, right? Because, well, before I made a lot of decisions, now I, I'm, a much, I'm acting much more like a parent or much like a coach. And then when the team fails, you know, now what do I do? And... So if, if you don't get the teams to become accountable inside that structure, it kind of all breaks down and we tend to gravitate back to the old model. So, you know, to get that model to work, to get the, the non what I'll call the hierarchical model to work, it's really imperative the teams become accountable. Because when things don't go right, something different has to happen. And if the teams aren't doing that, it all kind of breaks apart. So it puts a tremendous amount of pressure and onus on leadership to, to ensure that these teams become accountable and make it work. And it's not always easy because what that means is, you know, again, it goes back to losing control. And it, it means I'm going to have to, you know, to get people that are willing and able to, to take on the tough stuff as opposed to waiting for the leader to do that. 
Listeners, you're tuned in to the Small Business Matters podcast. We have as our guest today, Eric Coriel, an expert in helping teams build accountable teams. Eric, you were describing earlier some of the behaviors that make it difficult to build high-performing teams. And I've heard you speak before about the topic of pairing. Would you mind describing uh, what pairing is and what impact it has on teams? Sure. And that was a term I got from Pat. Pat studied the works of a guy named Wilford Bion. And, and Wilford Bion is one of the founders of group dynamic thinking. And he, Bion, was the one who really kind of discovered the, the damage pairing does. And, and in, in more common terms, you'll hear people call it gossiping or triangulating or backbiting. But really what it means is, is, is when you take on a real issue, whenever there's a, a, an issue that's affecting the team's ability to be successful, if you think about it, teams pretty much have a three-step process for doing that. First, they tend to ignore. You know, they avoid it. You know, maybe have a teammate is not performing. So my, my typical first reaction is to do nothing, right? He's just having a bad day. Hopefully, it'll get better. And I will tend to stay in what I'll call ignore mode for a period of time until my anxiety starts to build. And, and typically, at that point, as a teammate, and this, you know, my other teammate's not getting the job done, I will do what Beyond would describe as pairing. And pairing means I'm going to start talking to my teammates about that the, the problem, right? So I'm going to go talk to John and Mary and Ben all about, you know, you know, if I say Frank's not getting the job done, I'm going to go talk to everybody else about Frank. Hey, have you noticed Frank lately? And, and, and that is called pairing. And pairing means, hey, we, we take on our real issues with anything less than everyone affected by that issue present. You know, probably a simpler term is we just talk negatively about someone and they're not in the room. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about it, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's horrible. But when you pay attention, it's done all the time. And what happens is we'll do that and we'll continue to do that until we realize the problem's not getting addressed. And then we move into the final step, which is usually looking to the leader to solve the problem. If the leader doesn't solve the problem, now we kind of turn on the leader and we'll start pairing about the leader. And the conversations will be, gee, if only the boss had this act together, we'd be fine. And the problem with pairing is, is it really it destroys trust that whenever I talk about someone else in the team to, to somebody else, you know, while I may create a bond with that person and we kind of connect because we're, you know, we're seeing the problem child together. It destroys trust because deep down they know I'll do it to them. And deep down, I know they'll do it to me. So while I do it in the moment to kind of create a bond with someone else, it's a false bond. Uh, and what it ends up doing is destroying trust and ultimately destroying the team. So one of the, you know, if you ever had a really good team, one of the things, if you think back to that team, you'll probably realize is, you know what, we didn't talk behind each other's back very often because we knew it was the wrong thing to do. Yet in most corporate environments, it's it's rampant, it's prevalent. So as a leader, you know, as I always ask the leaders, hey, is it okay your employees talk negatively about each other? And everyone says, well, no. And then my next question is, well, why do you tolerate it? Um, and I did too. I mean, I'm not pointing the finger, but if I want a team to, to function at a level with trust, I, I can't tolerate people doing that. It's not okay for you to talk negatively about each other. So one of the important things a leader does is just sets the ground rule. Look, we don't do that. It's amazing how powerful that is in terms of powerful, destructive, and then beneficial when, when people stop doing it. Because if I can't do that, it now forces me to start taking on the issue in a much more healthy way. I got to go talk to that person. Or, or deal with it as a group. And that's when teams function. Eric, before we jump into the rapid fire questions, one point I tend to hear a lot of when talking about teams is that sometimes there is a, a threshold in terms of how many people on a team make up a, a productive team. Oh. 
Yeah. Uh, any any insights or research you can share with our listeners about that? Well, the research just kind of comes from my own experience, so you just have to keep that in mind. What I tend to watch is this: is the ideal size is five to eight. And where I've come to that conclusion and what I found is, and you can certainly have a team that's smaller. You can certainly have a successful team that's bigger. Um, Why I like five as a minimum is it gives you enough diversity of thought. Smaller teams, I I will often watch struggle with with just diversity of perspective, diversity of of ideas. And so I kind of like odd numbers and I like like getting up to about four or five, you know, is kind of the min. The reason why I choose eight and uh, I'll say nine to as a max is because there's only so much space in a team. When we have a meeting, there's only so much space, you know, for contribution. And once you start getting over eight, what I watch happen is you end up getting a lot of spectators. And so can you have a team that's accountable larger than eight? Absolutely. But you got to work really hard to make sure that those people are involved and engaged and you include them and get them to speak. So five to eight just seems to be a a natural size. It tends to work easy on its own. If it's smaller or larger, you just have to kind of work hard to offset what I'll call the inherent challenges that will happen with that. Taylor, I can't believe how fast our, our time is going today. We've got just enough time for your rapid fire questions. Eric, are you ready? Sure. Go ahead, Taylor. All right. What is a blog or a website that you read daily for business news, insights, or, or new takes? I don't have a daily one. I, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan, um, Stephen Guys, who wrote Mini Habits. So I follow them, but I, I don't have a blog or website that I follow. I mean, I'm, I'm a big YouTuber, so I'll, I'll get I'll blow away a half an hour hour just watching a YouTube video. There'll be another one like, oh, I should go watch that. And, um, so there's certain people out there that I, I just love. Mark Manson, uh, Simon Sinek. I mean, there's just so many good, good stuff out there. And the Dan Pinks and the, there's just a lot. So I, and I just kind of rifle around and do that. But I have to admit, I don't have a, a regular following. Yeah, I know what you mean. If you go down some of those Daniel Pink or Simon Sinek yeah. channels, you could spend hours on YouTube. Hours. And, and I have. <laughs> What's a, a, a Fortune 500 company or just a large business in general that you think does a great job in terms of building great teams um, and kind of providing a case study in some regards? Yeah, so I, it's interesting because I end up working with smaller companies on average because I think it's it's a hard for a large organization to really create accountable teams. And so I, Harley-Davidson is the one large organization that I've, I've worked with that I've watched work hard at doing this, but it's a challenge. I have not personally witnessed others. I've heard, obviously, great things about Google, Netflix. I mean, there's a few companies out there that, that are renowned for working hard at doing a lot of this stuff. But I haven't personally witnessed one that I would say is, is a huge success at it. I, I think it's a, a, it's a tough challenge for large companies to do this. All right. What is a, a business trend or something you're seeing more often in the marketplace that you would love to see die tomorrow? <laughs> I love that question. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, anonymous 360 reviews I think are the most destructive way of giving performance reviews. In fact, any kind of annual performance reviews need to die. I'm just a big believer of much more frequent feedback and doing it together as a group. And so getting people to, to learn to talk to each other face-to-face and, and not do the anonymous or, or not do the you know behind closed doors with the boss. That was a good answer. I like that. And we'll get you out of here on this. What is the favorite part of your job today? Oh, my gosh. I, I'm the luckiest man alive. I, I get to work with different teams every day, so I, I get to learn a lot. 
There's so many companies out there and for a variety of reasons, but they're working so hard at creating healthier cultures. It's hard to find people. So I think it's put a lot of onus on leadership to create healthy environments. So it's fun to work with different companies and see what they're doing to create what I'll call more adult organizations. So I love the learning aspect. Um, but then I love just being able to pass on what, what I've learned, right? So it's kind of a neat job where I get to kind of barter. Right? You know, I learn and then get to share that with other people. And it kind of maybe you know fits my little schizophrenic personality. But every day is different. I mean, I get to work with different teams, different organizations, and, and I just love it. And it's, it's there's a lot of good things going on. I'm, I have great hope for our future. Taylor, I'm going to break tradition, and I'm going to add one more rapid-fire question. Eric, your favorite all-time Badger. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm a huge Badger hockey fan. So in my, in my day, the Badger hockey team was, was really good. Uh, so Tony Granato was the star at that, at that time and, and just loved watching him through college and, and then on his professional career now as a coach. Um, so he was my favorite. Well, Taylor, I don't know about you, but I've got a whole page of notes from Eric's talk today, everything from the importance of hiring, uh, the five steps in building a team, the importance of shared faith, what stood out for you? I don't know if there was one thing. I think what I'm taking away just reflecting on the conversation is how difficult all this is and that it's not yeah. something you can wake up and, and the next day implement this, this team accountability. It's really something you have to work for and, and continue to learn and more something that you just have to practice in general rather than apply immediately. That's a very astute observation, and I, I, I felt that I did. A, I tried to jump to the end, you know. And, and guys, we just got to trust each other, and we and we got to respect each other, and and it just doesn't work that way. And you're you're absolutely right, Taylor. It, it's a process. It's a journey. It's, it's something as a leader you have to keep working on. It can happen by accident, but I think it, that's much more the exception than the rule. Eric, I know that uh, some of our listeners are going to want to follow up with you. What is the best, easiest way for them to contact you? Well, um, actually, I just had a book published. So I was approached by a publisher last year. So it's, it, it's on Amazon now. You can buy it. It's called Revolutionized Teamwork. Uh, it's by um, Sourcebooks. It's actually by their Simple Truths Division. And their, their belief is most business books are too long. So the requirement is the book has to be written so it can be read in less than an hour. So I think that is a good resource for kind of giving a, a, a good base understanding of a lot of the things we talked about today. But if they wanted more help, obviously, I, I'm glad to do that. And the best way to reach me is is email. Um, so the email address that that's, you can reach me at is ecoriel. So that's E-C-O-R-Y-E-L-L at wi.rr.com. Or you're more than welcome to give me a call. My cell phone's 414 840-5704. Terrific. Well, I want to encourage our listeners to, to go to Amazon and, and buy Eric's new book. also want to mention uh, that Eric is a great speaker. And if your team, if your organization is looking for uh, a speaker to come in and address this topic of, of teamwork, uh, Eric is, is certainly your guy. Eric, thank you for being with us today. Great uh, insights. And I hope maybe one day we'll have you back again. I look forward to it. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. I want to finish by reminding our listeners that this is the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. May you continue to pursue all that matters. <laughs>